Welcome to the Disconnection Podcast. My name is Kyle Nielsen, and I'm going to be your host for today's show. During this episode at Disconnection, we'll be speaking to Alessandra Elizabeth. And Alessandra, why don't you tell us and our audience a little bit about who you are, what you do. Okay. Hi, I'm Alessandra, and I am a student at Columbia School of Social Work. I work with children who live in the Lower East Side um, and a public high school. I have a master's in education. I just moved to Brooklyn, and um, <laughs> yeah, it's nice to be here. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Absolutely. Um, so how did you get into that? Was there some sort of event back when you were a kid that you decided, hey, this is what I want to do? Absolutely. Uh, prior to this, I got my master's in education. And while I was in that program, I realized that I wanted to do more in regards to the socio-emotional development of adolescents and knew that the authoritative position of a teacher wasn't my strong point, even though I was quite a good teacher, um, <laughs> not to toot my own horn. And, uh, (laughs) um, and yeah, so I'm here at Columbia and thinking more about macro levels of influences, thinking about going to program, program development, uh, yeah, trying to help school do better. So restructuring schools to be more student focused and yeah. Uh, was there someone that influenced you when you were younger that made you kind of want to mimic what they did? I mean, for me, I had... TV shows, movies, and I wanted to be a ninja, and so I ended up going into the military. But you can't really be a ninja, you know, yeah. in today's world. So was there someone that made you want to help others and to influence the the new generations that come after us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was not the ideal student. I struggled a lot um, as an adolescent, as a child. My I grew up with a quite a tumultuous family, and while I felt very supported by my mother, my father was a very um, distant figure, but I realized that something that really assisted me in my development was my social worker when I was in high school, and I knew how much of an impact she made on my life, recognized my potential, and I wanted to provide that to children, um, particularly teenagers. It's my first time working with teenagers. My background is with children, so working you know, first grade, second grade, and fourth grade. Um, so this is a new experience, but I feel that I very much connect to them in ways that I think we all do, right? We all have that young spirit inside of us, so yeah. it's good to connect with them. Uh, I like to think mine's a little younger. I like to, that inner five-year-old. The, my mom calls him little Kyle. <laughs> so the the ch- almost baby a little bit more uh-huh. is, you know, residing inside me. It's the light, the innocence in right. a sense. Um, would you say that uh, working with teenagers has kind of enlightened your teenage years? You know, looking back, like, oh, I kind of dealt with that. This kid seems like he's having some issues that I've been through myself mm-hmm. and having been through that murky water, you know, wading through it, and it's difficult while you're in it, you can provide that insight for those kids. Absolutely. I got suspended from high school for smoking pot. I had my own addiction issues with opioids and um, various substances. And being in a school, um, you know, you connect with teenagers because particularly with the, the group of 
kids that I work with, they not only have those, you know, regular teenage problems of hormones and sex drive and stressors of academics, but these children in particular are dealing with poverty, racism, and these larger factors influence their everyday life, police brutality, and trying to manage that and support them navigating that is something very difficult. And I feel that because of my background in education and my bachelor's in sociology, I am a very social justice um, centered and my practice in therapy and with children is very much centered around that. And I recognize that that is a critical point of my practice in working with kids and recognizing and providing them the ability to recognize what's happening around them and navigating those larger systems in order for them to reach their full potential. Have you had any instances where a kid would come in and has complained like, you know, he just had an instance where he was uh, detained or stopped by a police officer and said like, hey, open up your backpack or whatever it is. Has that happened? Not that particular instance, but I have had a couple of children, uh, students that I work with talk about losing their friends to police brutality and being shot. That's something that they deal with regularly, which is alarming and not so not exceptionally shocking, but definitely something that's alarming to someone who was grown up with a certain amount of privilege, uh, you know, financially. Right. So hearing that is always unsettling to speak to someone and have them tell you a story of how they found their friend shot on the street. Wow. Do you think that part of the difficulties of growing up now, not only in poverty, but with the social norms that are expected of people? I mean, you just said that uh, you were from a more privileged area. Mm -hmm. A lot of people misconstrue what privilege is. They think that when you say, oh, someone has privilege, that it's you're saying they're bad. Mm -hmm. It's not that they're bad. It's that they are not dealing with these circumstances that other people are. And so they don't have to find their friend Mm -hmm. uh, who passed or was shot and killed. They don't have to deal with being pulled over every time they drive or multiple times a month or a year or whatever Mm -hmm. it might be. Uh, I think that these kids that are growing up, they're especially because we're so reliant upon technology, everyone is compounded and the echo chambers aren't just echoing they're blasting like loudspeakers on these kids that are growing up and they don't really know who to go to Mm because everything is telling them you're fucked right absolutely um i mean to just kind of give a broad definition of privilege are people who benefit from a system that is inherently designed to benefit their development and support And while some people are privileged, others are completely oppressed and disenfranchised in the larger system. So when we speak about white privilege, what that means is that people who are of white skin are inherently benefiting from a system that was designed to enhance their ability to succeed in larger society and all others fail and are are at a loss in comparison to that. So, for example, if you have a child who's white in poverty versus children that I work with that are predominantly of color, their experiences are starkly different. While they do experience the same kind of basic needs and the lack of those in regards to 
you know, nutrition or safety, love, things like that, perhaps that's the same. But if a young black child is walking down the streets, he is more inclined to be discriminated against more punitively than someone who is white. And that is something that cannot be denied when one in three black men are incarcerated. It's not something up for debate. It is simply a fact. Yeah. I feel like when I look back at even my time in high school, our time in high school, Mm -hmm. I know of people even who were stopped by police officers Mm -hmm. who had a gram or uh, a bowl on them that smelled like it had been smoked out of recently. And the cops took it and threw it or they Mm -hmm. took it and threw it out themselves elsewhere. But if my friends were black, they would have they would have taken them to jail most likely, right? Absolutely. There's um, no debate in regards to the amount of incarceration that comes with black lives and what that rate is in comparison to white folks. The predominant amount of people of color who are in jail are for misdemeanors and their inability to access resources and um, legal um, support. For example, when I was in high school, I was constantly in communication with the police. Granted, it was in the suburbs, so it was a little bit different. But if I didn't have the ability to have a f- mother who su- who provided substantial finances yeah. for that, I don't know where I would be. Um, it's just something that happens. These families in primarily black communities who are impoverished, come from a cycle of poverty, right? Mm-hmm. Like, a, you know, it repeats itself. Right. So their ability to provide these resources to their kids is is almost absent because they haven't been given the ability to understand what they are um, entitled to and what is right for them to understand their judicial rights are not being taught to them. So right. it's very difficult. They don't have the ability to be like, oh, I can just hire a lawyer and have them, you know, go to court for me. Right. No, they have to present themselves. And they don't or know do how they, to... Yeah. Or do they even have the money to hire the lawyer? Absolutely. They're provided, um, you know, ad, uh, advocates who okay. are working pro bono. And those those people those are who are these pro bono lawyers, they're totally burnt out. They're working exhausted. Cases. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's a whole different ball field when poverty and race comes into the discussion of privilege. Would you say that uh, kids, whether they're boys or girls in poverty, do you see a difference in what their expectations are? Is the culture that we live in still, um, you know, forcing them to fit the norms or are you seeing something else? We think a lot about um, women, predominantly women of color, children of color who are women girls I suppose um and you know I don't remember the name of the woman who described it she's a very famous um black woman but she talked about a ladder and she said that on top of that ladder it's white men below that it's white women black men black women and they're just holding on black women are and not even just black women, people of color, right? They're holding on and taking in all of the discretion and discrimination that comes from everything above them. So women of color are facing an extra mental amount of pain and discrimination that no other things above them would ever understand. And it's not about the oppression, the uh, 
my friend once said it was the oppression Olympics, right? So you're not trying to compare it, but you're recognizing the systems at play that are inherently discriminated against you. So for women of color, their experiences are, it's, I mean, it's heinous. I mean, it's really just evil for them. So when I'm working with these from, with black women, we lack young kids, um, their ability to understand who they are in relation to the greater systems is devastating. We talk about, you know, mean girls and girls who fight and why that is. It's because they're not fighting the girl next to them. They're fighting the system of patriarchy. They're fighting what is pushing against them every day. So we think about, oh, girls are just so mean. They're so dramatic. No, they're taking on everyday discrimination. And that relinquishes and comes inside of you. And what it becomes is a rage. And so when you're given the ability to, t to express that, it comes out in these micro-violent experiences amongst young girls. So even in that, you know, in Mean Girls, in the movie, you see that, right? Like, who's fighting who? But who, what was the center of that was male attention. So this kind of constant girl fighting is really relative to understanding who's fighting who and why are we doing this. It's because we're constantly feeling that we're less than and not being provided the ability to appreciate who we are because we yearn for male affirmation or you're told that you need to yearn for yeah. male affirmation when a, if a woman isn't told they're beautiful by a man does she believe she's beautiful it's funny girls uh that i know and i always remember uh you know, who are you getting dressed up for? I'll, I'll ask that uh, to my mom, even like when she's going out to get groceries, like why right. do you need to, you know, make yourself up? And not just specifically my mother, but a lot of women give me the answer of I'm getting dressed up or I'm looking good for other women. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think it's actually that? Or do you think that it is that male acceptance of, oh, you look good, like, when a man tells you or when a man tells a woman, like, you should smile more. If a woman or if people kept telling me, like, you should smile more, I'd be like, shut the fuck up. I yeah. don't want to hear this. Like, I'm not in the mood. It would piss me off even more. Yeah. You know, women walk down the street and constantly being told how to behave in their everyday life. And, you know, it was just, you know, 50 some years ago that women were accustomed to believe that a man taunting them in the office space was acceptable. You know, if you showed a little bit more leg, you know, you might get some attention. Why is that so important? And why do we feel that the male affirmation is critical to our own self-discovery and development? If people, if particularly if men are not giving you that attention, women perhaps don't feel that they're beautiful. We look at certain images that are produced predominantly by men and our perceptions and ability to understand who we are as women is very dictative of larger society. So the question like of, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you deal with that on a regular basis is, it's exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting. And you see it with, you know, my young, my young, my young girls, my young girls of color who are just defeated at the age of 15 because they feel the only way that they'll ever feel loved is by, you know, getting a guy to send them a picture 
a dick pic. I yeah. mean, seriously, like if, you know, if it's like, if they don't get that, are they worthy of their own ability to love themselves? If a guy doesn't tell you you're hot, are you hot? How do you know that? And it's reflective of something bigger than that. We can't say that, oh, like that she's just, she's just insecure. No, it's because we've been taught to look in the mirror and say, like you're saying, are you getting dressed up for yourself? You know, for other women? No, you're getting dressed based on a certain ideal of how you're supposed to present yourself as a woman. And if it's not aligned to a certain expectation, you are discriminated against and you do get repercussions and you get girls talking about you because you're not aligning to the expectation of what it means to be a girl or a woman. Right. The, that brings to the, my mind immediately Barbie mm-hmm. and how little girls see their friends who have a Barbie doll mm-hmm. and they immediately go to their parents and they go, I want a Barbie doll too. And then every little girl has a Barbie doll or some sort of toy, like an action figure for guys, but for girls, it was Barbie dolls, which, mm-hmm. first of all, why does it have to be a Barbie doll instead of an action figure is a totally different discussion. <laughs> but they look at this plastic doll and they assume that, oh my God, it's my responsibility to look like this doll. Mm-hmm. That's the ideal picture. And personally, I have a friend who she has a lot of self-image issues. And so mm-hmm. she'll call me on occasion and she'll ask for advice or there's been a period of time where I wanted her to as much as she could or as much as she was able to, to eat food, have a proper diet, to not starve herself, to not cut herself because that's not what you need to do. You don't need to cut yourself when you get into fights with your boyfriend to get his attention. You should talk to him. That's what you need to do. You need to express how you feel. Mm -hmm. Why did he upset you? Why is it that you're trying to get his attention? Maybe you shouldn't even be with him in the first place because you're vying for this attention from this guy who doesn't give a fuck. And that's an issue. You don't need to treat yourself or put yourself in a situation where you're treated like shit. That's not what's supposed to happen. That's not being treated like a human. Absolutely. You know, on a very, on a very personal level, I it's interesting to think of my own experiences. I don't identify as straight and never have, but I do find my, I do find myself in relationships with men. And for the most part, they have been borderline abusive. So you, if you, you know, for, for example, you know, you go home for the holidays when the first questions a woman's asked is, well, maybe it's for everyone, right? It's like, who are you dating? It's not, what are you doing? It's not, yeah. what are you studying? What are you reading? What are you learning? It's, it's like, who are you, who are you talking to? Who are you? Are you being asked that by your friends or by like family? I mean, everyone, right? So, I mean, a lot of my friends are in relationships. So for myself, you know, like what's single life like? And I'm like, it's uh, this mystery. <laughs> yeah. And it's not, it's, this is the first time in my life I've been very, very single. So I really was dating a lot. Um, and I found myself with men who were not only very bourgeois and very wealthy, but also controlling and abusive. And why did I find myself in those positions when I, uh, you know, believe myself to be this very self-advocating driven feminist woman who is totally empowered but in in the matter of fact is that why do I find myself in relationships where you know not my ex but the one before that I was you know I was held down by 
I was held down by him and he was like, you liked it. And I was like, no, I told you to stop and you didn't stop. But why do they keep going back? Right. Mm -hmm. So what are the larger systems at play that make me go back to him? Was he attractive? Was he wealthy? And why are women drawn to that? Is it because they feel they need it or is it because they think that it'll make you look good? And why is that so important to us? And of course, I'm not providing all the answers, but I'm just asking questions that are kind of, you know, brewing in my mind in relationship to who I am engaging with and why that is. And I think it's very telling of, you know, who attracted, I mean, I think that something bigger than that is if you don't find yourself attractive, you might subdue your own self-worth to someone who is extremely attractive because you feel it gives you social capital. And I think women do that all the time. They make themselves feel exceptionally small um, in relationship to the men they're with. I mean, it's super, it's super devastating. I mean, it feels like shit to say that out loud. You know, you don't want to admit that, but that's really the case. Why did I stay with him so long? I couldn't tell you. And why did I see him like two months ago? I couldn't tell you. Wow. (laughs) I mean, you're not going to have all the answers, but the questions are the beginning of the conversations. So you ask the question, you don't have the answer and you talk it out. And you try and figure it out with whoever you're with, with it, someone you're going to for advice or someone you're just like, hold on, I need to like let go some of some shit. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, like people like, you know, they say that you can't be in a relationship or be with someone unless you truly love yourself. And I had an amazing professor at Columbia who said that that's complete bullshit. Yeah, she, I'm going to agree. And she, <laughs> and she loves to curse. And she always says she's like, that is fucking garbage there's absolutely no way to tell that there is an ability in yourself if you want to give love to someone else and how that love in itself can make you grow and to honor that and to not make yourself feel like you're less than because you don't love yourself completely and for women to feel like they can't engage in relationships or with whomever they'd like because they don't feel like they don't love yourself is fucking bullshit you know like give be open to experiencing different relationships it's it's life's too short to feel that you need to be x y and z to engage in something that feels right in that moment i mean maybe that's my i mean i can't speak for everyone i speak for myself when i say that but you know i think a lot of the times people are always ask me like oh how did you do that or why did you do that and it's like because it felt right in that time i don't regret the things i've done you know and i think that's really important for everyone to kind of acknowledge and and be with. Um, There's something that uh, I feel like empowers when you are okay with what you've done, when you Mm -hmm. are okay with feeling right in that moment. Uh, And sometimes you look back on the moment and you regret it and you don't really, you're not really sure why, or you can't comprehend what was it about it that made it feel good or, or different or exciting or whatever the, experience was for you and I feel like some of that gets lost with uh, especially the movement that's going on right now the Mm -hmm. me too movement yeah uh so part of the whole movement uh initiated a decade ago um but Alyssa Milano I believe it was uh tweeted about it and was like we need to reinvigorate this movement Mm -hmm. because it's it's important it's the I think the conversation that initiated it, um, and let me just look over at my notes really quick. <laughs> uh, Tarana Burke 
was the woman who started the Me Too movement, and she was in a conversation with a little girl who was confessing to her about uh, being sexually abused. And she didn't have the words for it. And she couldn't figure out what to say to this little girl. And after, she looked back and she said, all I needed to say to th this girl was me too. That's, that's what it, mm -hmm. just I'm there with you. I'm there in that emotion. Yeah. So when people come forward and they express themselves, it's so empowering. And that small percentage of people who maybe they aren't really sure what it was about it that made them you know, regret the experience. Even if it's one in a hundred, that person is coming forward and somebody else's life is ruined as a result, mm -hmm. which I don't think is fair. Um, but even me personally, uh, I would like to say me too. I've been uh, in an experience where I was sexually abused and I look back at that moment and I don't understand what it was that made me keep going back. First yeah. of all, I'm... I'm straight or I consider myself straight, but this was a guy that took advantage of me in a very vulnerable situation. I mean, I, I've been in the military. I'm supposed to be badass. I'm supposed to be, you know, taking care of myself. We were just joking about it before we started the podcast that like, I don't need to worry about that, right? I'm walking through the street. I'm a Marine. Like, yeah. fuck, I'll kick your ass. Like, sometimes you trust a person so much and it statistically is that's the people who are close to you, the people you feel comfortable with are the ones that hurt you the most. They're the ones that abuse you. And you're not even realizing you're in the abuse because you you make up excuses for the person. You no, know, they don't actually mean what they do. Uh, they, they didn't mean to make me feel that way. Yeah. I mean, we know statistically that most abuse <coughs> and experiences of coercion and rape are done by people who are close and either it's family members or family friends or a friend we know the statistics show that that's when the most abuse happened it's not some random man on the street that comes and pins you up it is someone that you've known who takes advantage of you when you're in your most vulnerable state and you know in regards to what you experience, I think that a good question to think about is why did you feel it was, you know, something that you were comfortable with? And I'll just say it as a fact, I don't think anyone's straight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's... There has to be a spectrum. There is a spectrum. It's, and, it's and all about a spectrum. No, it's, it's all about fluidity. And that's why I said before, I said I never identified it straight. I never felt comfortable with that. I don't feel it's lined to who I am. I'm not a hegemonic kind of like boxed in person. I don't identify, I don't identify as white. I don't identify as straight. It's just not something I'm comfortable with. Um, I recently decided that maybe I'd go out and be like, I'm queer, but like I find myself like <laughs> Wait, constantly I'm... with men. So like, I don't know. Yeah. But I mean, I have had relationships with women, so it's not not like that. But I think it's when I when I said before, it was like, so for women, it's about male affirmation. And I wonder if the patriarchy does in fact induce a kind of self-yearning to have that affirmation from men, from men to men. We see that with this hyper-masculinity and how they're like, yo, be a man. Why are you acting that? Don't be a fucking faggot. Like, why are you acting? Don't be a pussy. Yeah. So what does that mean? And why was, why did you, 
the question of why is subjective and it sounds judgmental, but I mean that just because I'm just curious to what you I think mean, that was. I don't have all the answers, right? I have more questions too. It's why did I uh, continue to hang out with this guy who I believe to be my friend? Mm -hmm. And maybe some of that seeking that affirmation was it because at the time I was very lonely. I had uh, secluded or isolated myself from everyone around me, my friends, my family, uh, a recent relationship that had just ended, left me devastated, and I was looking for something that made me feel like, okay, I'm worth it. I'm worth someone's time. I'm worth someone's energy, and I can give. I have something to give, and isolating myself left me thinking that I had nothing to give, so uh, it was when I began modeling, and I felt comfortable with this person even being naked because we had done nude shoots. Mm -hmm. uh, part of the thought behind it was how do you feel comfortable in clothes standing in front of a camera like sometimes yeah. you feel a little goofy like oh you're gonna take a picture I mean this is kind of weird but to be completely released of everything you can hide behind it's like holy shit like all right I can do this right. type of deal so when I was taken advantage of I was confused I wasn't sure did I like it because I like him or was it because I like men in general i I don't have all the answers. I have lots of questions myself. And as a result, I'm trying to answer some of those questions. I've experimented with men my age. This guy was older. Um, and I've had relationships with older women. So I kind of feel almost like it was a mentorship deal. But at the same time, like, was I assaulted? Was I molested? I don't, I wasn't raped. Um, but the assault, the mol molestation, like that's questions that I'm, I don't have the answer to because I came out of it going, oh, well, I have these experiences and now I've done these experiments after and I, don't, I still don't have the answer. I think that the question of language in regards to abuse, coercion, and rape are critical and things that we feel very hesitant to label and name. My mentor always says, name it, call it what it was. And what you experienced was absolutely abuse. It was absolutely coercion. Rape, by definition, is penetration. So that's something that did not happen from what I understand. But what you did experience was coercion, and it wasn't assault. And it's very critical to name that because I think that we don't feel comfortable doing that. Women all the time say, oh, I was passed out and he put his fingers inside of me or whatever. That was assault. Right. You have to name it yeah. because it's it's absolutely critical to the dialogue in regards to sexual assault. And we need to be more uh, proactive in naming things for what they are. And from what I understand what you experienced was not okay. You did not ask for it. And because you had a physical response, I mean, that was done to you does not make it okay. And I don't think that you or anyone should be able to pass judgment on something because it was of the same sex. Do you understand? Do you know what no, I'm saying? No, I don't. Yeah, I don't follow on that. So like, I think that when it happens to men, people don't believe that it's possible, right? They're like, yeah. they're like, oh, like men can't be raped. It does happen, and men can exude a physical response by, 
you know, getting hard or whatever happens, but that doesn't mean that it was okay. Didn't mean that you asked for it and it doesn't mean that you wanted it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's important to name what it was and it was absolutely an assault and it was not okay. And I think it's important for the dialogue in regards to men being assaulted is that you take ownership for it and not for you doing anything wrong, but like naming it and taking power and understanding that there are large systems at play that make you feel like confused about it. You're like, but am I gay? Like, no, like, you know, like no one can ascribe you the sexuality, but yourself, you can have sex with a man and still not think that you're gay or think that that's something that you want to label yourself. And I'm not saying that about you. I'm saying that like in general, general. right, right. You know, like I can have sex with a woman. It's mean I'm a lesbian. It means I was experiencing something with a particular woman because I liked it or I wanted to enjoy it. I think that exactly on that point, letting yourself go, not being confined by the standards that Mm -hmm. are expected of us right like you're uh straight so you have to be only with women or you're gay so you only can be with uh men or or women a lesbian or labeling yourself as like bisexual right we all want to as humans we want to categorize and understand what exactly is going on but humans are emotional humans are as you said you know fluid and and we move back and forth and we responsive yeah responsive so I think that part of everyone realizing that when you feel an emotion towards someone, it doesn't mean anything. Just like you said, it's, which I'm also learning. I'm in the middle of learning is it's, you can just be with that experience, with that emotion and, you know, go into it more, go not, you know, maybe you're afraid of it, whatever it might be. And then maybe question why you're afraid of it. What is it that scares you? And also like, what's, what's so bad about being open to a certain experience and what's con- what's stopping you from doing something? I'm not speaking to the experience that you had. I'm speaking to something like greater, like you're with someone and you're questioning, do I want to be with them? Why not? Like, I think I want them, but, but that's a, so for me, it'd be like, oh, that's a girl, but I don't like girls. But it's like, no, I like this person right. and I want to fuck the shit out of her. What's <laughs> the problem with that? Like nothing. Like we have to stop creating these boxes that put us in this ability to constrain ourselves and, and experience like the human desire. Like I said before, you know, life's too short. I don't understand why people, I mean, I do understand there are large drugs that tell us how we're supposed to behave. Right. There is. Yeah. Where we become, uh, I don't want to say it because it's been, it's so like repeated, but we're we're slaves to society in multiple senses, in complex senses. uh, And we create even more complex structures that we can't find our our way out of because there's 10 other, you know, foundations behind it that are like, no, you're going to stay right here. You're going to hang out and you can't do shit about it. Yeah. I don't know if it was Foucault or if it was Marx, but it's like, are you a sheep or are you a wolf? And who do you subscribe to? Right. And how do you determine if you want to be the follower or the leader? And why is it only can you be the follower or leader? Why yeah. can't you kind of flow in between? I think fluidity is critical as humans and being honorable to your own emotional vulnerability and experiences. I completely agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would actually like to talk about uh, comedy as a gateway towards many discussions. So I have a bunch of friends who will crack jokes. And I think that um, comedy is one of the best ways to begin a discussion or to 
enlighten someone as to what's going on around them. Right. Maybe they're ignorant to a structure, a social structure that they're you know stuck in. And comedians allow that opportunity to joke about it. But then we get lost in the comedy, right? Mm-hmm. Then we're not really sure, like, are, is this person serious or are they joking around? Uh, I, when I was growing up, I watched the show Will and Grace. And it's funny because I took a women's study class uh, two semesters ago. Um, and they talked about Will and Grace. And I was like, oh, I love this show. Like, perfect. Let's talk about it. And I didn't think about it, you know, being a kid, that they were just conforming to what was expected, Right. So in the very first episode, Will and Grace, uh, you're told that Will is gay and Grace just left her soon-to-be husband at the altar and you see them kiss at the end, but it was like a kiss of like, oh, we're going to live together now. We're going to hang out together and this will be us. But as a kid, you don't think about it like that. Even though you're told Will is gay, you see, oh, man and a woman. Oh, it's a relationship. Oh, they have something going on, even if it was only a friendship. Mm-hmm. So, and then, of course, you're given the the super flamboyant uh, sideshow. Um, and I can't even recall his name at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Will and Grace's friend. I can't recall. Uh, but it's like, oh, there's that too. And there's no in-between between uh, the flamboyant friend and Will, who is like super masculine and doesn't really have any gay tendencies at all. Mm, absolutely. I think it's all performance, right? Like femininity and masculinity are all performances that have been taught to us from a very early age. You know, women and a young girl are supposed to be inclined to adore pink and that's their color. Men like blue, that's their color. If you stray against that, you're considered a tomboy or less than or, um, you know, gay, fag, whatever the term is. And it's completely taught to us. We are exposed to very, very strict gender norms. And if you don't follow those, you are abnormal and considered less than because you're not adhering to certain social structures of how you are supposed to behave. And it's completely um, detrimental to the human development because people particularly folks who are queer and are transgender and don't ascribe to certain boxes that they feel that they feel that they have to ascribe to it's it's painful you know about the you know different kinds of suicide rates that have happened predominantly in the transgender community and what that means because it's not because oh they were broken or they were depressed no they were taught they don't fit in therefore you don't deserve life and not to bring even religion into this, but I'm about to. Uh, <laughs> it's that, you know, I see a lot of, um, and there's been documentaries on it, of, or even YouTube videos yeah. of a gay kid filming his parents react to him coming out. Yeah. And they're like, we don't, you're not a part of our family. Yeah. Uh, you, God doesn't love you. You're sinful. And then that perpetuates into oh my god like nobody loves me i've got to kill myself right which we shouldn't even be talking about suicide because the psychology behind it is that it allows more people to want to commit but the the box that people who are right. eccentric are placed in well we know that the the statistics show that people who do kill themselves are it's higher rates actually in men and what that tells us is that 
first of all, you know, it's like, it's kind of very telling of a gender norm. It's like, if you're going to do it, be a man, go mm. forward with it, fucking kill yourself. Right. And that's super dark, but that's yeah, the truth yeah. of it. <laughs> it's very dark. No, but that's the truth of it. And there might be more of a cry for help for women who are yearning for attention. That goes back to the male affirmation, yearning for that kind of sense of purpose. And who's giving you that purpose? Is it yourself or is someone telling you that you deserve to live? And, you know, it kind of reminds me of my own father who is very um, uh, homophobic and puts that forward in my own brother. And he's <laughs> killed me for telling this. But, you know, it m my his whole life, my brother is very fluid. He's he's a beautiful young man. And trust me, he gets more girls than anyone. But <laughs> when it comes down to it, I think what he worries most is my father's um adornment and what my father always was worried about was why are you sleeping in a bed with your best friend why do you think that that's okay and my brother was like what do you mean he's just my friend he's sleeping over what's the what's the problem right and my dad was so concerned that he would be gay because he'd burn in hell right because my dad's muslim that okay. he would think that that's like the ultimate sin to steer away from what god has told us to become and I see that with my brother and him kind of going through that right now. Is he's like, my friends think I'm bi. My friends think I'm metro. Like, what does that mean? And I'm like, dude, no one can tell you what you are except for yourself. Right. Like, you cannot ascribe an identity to someone else. Don't ever, I mean, not, I'm not telling anyone to do anything, but it's not our responsibility to put forth um a gendered racial or sexual identity on another person it's ultimately up to the own to the self and if anyone puts that forward against you it if it, it it disrupts your ability to understand who you are because you're like managing your own identity so like for me if like racially like people are always like well, you know the question i get constantly is what are you it's like no like who am, who am I? I like yeah. why is it a what and it's a woman you get hyper sexualized so for me as someone who is racially ambiguous you're so exotic what are you i get guys coming up to me being like at a bar and the first thing that brazilian half black no excuse me who are you and what does this mean to me like why is that a question that you immediately think that first of all i i um am required to answer and also why is something i face constantly because if you don't fit into a certain box if i had an identity you constantly face those questions and you know if you're exoticized and you're hypersexualized as someone who doesn't perceive as exceptionally white you're intrinsically hypersexualized oh you like it rough i know you do and if i do it has nothing to do with the fact that i look brown it's because yeah. i fucking want that experience right, like you right. know what i mean but yeah. it's like because you look a certain way you're expected to uphold certain expectations and it's bullshit. So you are socially ascribed identities. People are not born a race. You are taught that you are X, Y, and Z. I remember the very specific time in my life where I was applying to colleges and I was looking at the boxes, white, black, uh, um, you know, African-American, Caucasian, I, Asian, Island Pacifica. And I was like, mom, what box do I check? She's like, oh, no, 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 like check white. And I was like, I looked at her and I was like, I'm... I'm not white. I've never felt white in my life. I've always felt different. I've never felt white a day in my life. I may exude privilege by the fact that I could pass as white and the fact that I had 
financial privilege, but I never felt what day in my life. So I pressed other. And what does that mean as a person to have to feel that they're the other box? And how do you proceed through life knowing that you're an othered and that you get hit on by guys and they think the first thing they should ask you is, what are you? You got to tell me. Brazilian, Hispanic, I got to know. That's, That's not hot. That's not okay. Yeah, why is that okay to assume that question is the first thing that's going to let you in? Because that's the goal, right? To let them in your pants or whatever, you know, like bring them home. You go back to their place. Like that's what the goal is when someone's hitting on you at a bar, which I am totally lost about in general. I haven't picked up a girl at a bar in years. I haven't even tried. I see no purpose. I think it's weird. If I'm going to meet someone at a bar... This is me personally. This is my own opinion. Yeah. But I don't see it going to, you know, culminate into anything of importance. I'm meeting you at a bar. Well, what's up? Like, if I'm looking for that in someone else, in a an environment where everyone's getting drunk, they're uh, debilitating their inhibitions, or, or is it the opposite? They're releasing their inhibitions. I'm not. <laughs> I, I'm not even sure. Like, people get drunk and then they're not like, oh, I'm kind of drunk. Like, oh, I had a good time. Like, oh, I'm kiss this guy at the bar. Like. Yeah, when I was fucking 12, I'm obviously just arbitrary. No, yeah. yeah. But, like, how do you pick up a girl? I remember when I was a kid, I read the book uh, The Game by Neil Strauss, and it's how to pick <laughs> oh, up tell women. tell me about that. It's, <laughs> the beginning of the book is Neil talks about how he's a loser, and he doesn't know how to pick someone up. And he uh, teaches himself by putting himself through rigorous almost training of I'm going to go and I'm going to make sure that I give myself a million opportunities and the numbers will just play out and I'll get eventually girls and I'll know how to get them eventually. And he talks about how to do it. And I remember thinking about it like, oh, it's a game. I want to win at the game. And then it doesn't become real. The other person isn't a human anymore. Mm. You treat them as an objective, as an accomplishment. As an object. Uh, Yeah, as an object. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, 100%. And I mean, and then on the other side, you know, you have women being taught, you know, how to get your best orgasm. Why do women have to teach themselves? And it's not like, and I, and I appreciate the sentiment of women taking ocean of their bodies and their sexual experiences, right? Like how do you get your back orgasm with a man? But it's like, why can't you? And it's, and it's movements, right? It's physical movements of how to engage sexually with a man, like put your body like this, do this. Why isn't it engage in a conversation and help men understand that like we're in this together. We're in a, you know, the idea of consent comes to mind. It's like, do you like this? What do you like? Is this cool? Is this not cool? No, I don't like that there. I like that there. Push mm. more here. Like, why is that not more in the discourse of how to engage? And you talked about flirting and I went immediately to sex. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going there. It's cool. It's no, cool. Yeah. So I just mean like, you know, and, and women, you know, I remember in magazines being like, how to like find your best man, like how to flirt, how to attract, like why am I constantly being taught to be objective to male's desire instead of honoring who I am as a woman and knowing what I want and knowing what I need from my partner rather than being like, how can I be the object of desire to a man? And it's something I think women do every day. It's like, why am I putting this eyeshadow on myself? Why am I putting this lipstick on? And if I wear these tights, does it make me look X, Y, and Z? Why am I constantly asking myself that? 
And why can't a girl just go to a bar? And there's also a different thing about like fashion, right? Like if you enjoy fashion, like you want to look good, like that's something for yourself. But like who's creating styles and who's creating what's quote unquote trendy? Right. It's a male, male patriarchy in what constructs our ability to see ourselves as valuable. And so like men being taught to pick up, pick up girls is very much like how to navigate the field of dominating women. You're right. Yeah. It, it, listen, if there's someone that wants to be dominated or wants to dominate. Oh yeah, no, go for it's, it. It's all on them. But again, consensual, agreed upon. We're about to go explore this, you know, experience together. Like, is it cool? Like, is yeah. it okay? Do you so, like being on your knees? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. But like, what is... <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, is that something that you want or that you've been taught? And also like the notion of choice comes into question. Like, am I choosing to want this or something that I really desire? I have friends that discuss their like, you know, I'm really vanilla. But, um, you know, their boyfriends never give them an orgasm. And why is that okay? Is it because you feel that, you know, the presence of a man and companionship is more important than your own sexual desire? Or is it because it's not that important to you? I'm not really sure because I feel that I'm a very sexual person and that for me, like, I could never imagine being with someone for two years, three years and never having an orgasm with my partner. But I guess perhaps the most important thing for some women is just having that physical presence. And maybe that's not just for a woman, that's for anyone, right? It's like sharing a very intimate space and acknowledging that. But I think for, you know, insects that, you know, it's done when the guy comes. And that's very telling of a patriarchal society and very telling of, what we value do we value you know females desire and you know lust and experience or do we value men it's it's a good question i don't definitely don't have the answer (laughs) but i can say that even i i would hope that the continued path of discussions about women like okay there are advice books and there are etiquette books of how people should act and books telling you or articles telling you in magazines like glamour like oh like attract this man this way or and for the most part they're all bullshit and it's clickbait type stuff that you want to figure out what it is and how to get it and they tell you and they've got the answers and then for most of them it's all the same thing they're not telling you anything new but there are, at least I believe, cultural differences from today and from 50 years ago when women's orgasms weren't even talked about. Absolutely. Me being a teenager, I don't know what the fuck I was <laughs> if I was giving orgasms at all. But after having been with older women and being like, show me, you know, putting yourself in that spot where it's like, I don't know what I'm doing. Being in the bedroom with whoever you're going to be with and talking about it. Yeah. Does this feel good? Like you said, uh, push harder here, you know, softer here. I don't like that. Put it there or whatever it might be. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a discussion. It's a dialogue. It's a dialogue. And yeah. 
that's not something that we're told is as a kid no. at least i don't remember like no abso- yeah. no absolutely and i think that the patriarchy harms both men and women because men are at disadvantage as well because they think it's just very simple as you know doing x y and z like just going for it like pleasuring yourself and at the end the woman's sitting there completely dissatisfied upset it's and happened to over me. Yeah. you know like looks it over has. like you know the guy looks over he's like did you come? <laughs> I've done that before. Holy shit. And the girl's like, uh, no, but it was like really nice. Like, thank you so much. Like, are you kidding me? And why is that so okay? Like, why are we? And, I, and I, I'm talking about orgasm because I feel like it's critical and very telling of like the physical experience of how the patriarchy manifests in sexual experiences because why is it okay that like sex ends when a guy finishes? Why is like, I mean, literally to the physical immediate, intermediate, like micro experiences of sex and what that says of larger structures and how we are supposed to behave as men and women. Uh, From a guy's perspective, (laughs) (laughs) from a guy's perspective, me personally. So I have this thing where I like, tell me about it. Yeah, (laughs) I have this almost uh, personality where I'm very nice and very kind, but I like things in the bedroom to go, you know, I'm, I'm dominant, we'll call it. When a girl, and I have had girls literally come up to me and be like, oh, I heard about you. I immediately feel like I'm, I have to assume a role. Like okay. I can't be myself. Like, mm-hmm. And then if it ever translate, which now being older, I don't allow it to translate into the bedroom where they're like, ooh, show me. It's like, no, like, I'm going to do me if I feel that you and I are going to do something. We will. But I have to feel it first. But before it was like, oh, I'm putting on a show. Like, oh, I've got to be this. I've got to be that. And then you feel a pressure on you of like, oh, shit, like, I've got to be good. I've, I've got to be great. Absolutely. I mean, it's all about, I mean, like I said before, it's a performance as a, you know, masculine femininity. And, you know, I've, I've dated a man who the pressure in itself of having to perform in like, can we like really explicit? <laughs> yeah. Um, Point it towards you for a second. Okay. I could take that out. So, I mean, like he had, he was really well endowed and nice. Yeah. T- so nice. Um, <laughs> but like he had a really hard time, you know, performing, because it made him super anxious and it when i heard this from someone else who dated him prior to me and it wasn't like oh he's a fucking faggot like he doesn't know how to like get it up no he felt this pressure in his performance to prove his large (laughs) 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 you know like it was hard for him because I think that he had a hard time understanding that he had to give this girl this experience of this like dominating blah, blah, blah. And that's just not what it was. And I think that's really telling of, you know, the stressor puts on you like, oh, like I've heard what you can do. Okay. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, holy like, shit. Like, like, I'm not in that mood right yeah, now. I don't know if I can do that. Right. So, I mean, like, gender is a performance. Like, how do we behave? How do we carry ourselves in society? Why do, you know, you know, I, every single fucking day of my life, I walk down the street and, 
yo baby you look so good blah 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 and it's just like why do i say thank you it's almost a feedback it's into like, it. Oh, thank you. Like, no, fuck you. Like, why am I telling you? Why am I applauding you for giving me feedback I didn't ask for? Yeah. And why do I feel that if I don't get that, I look like shit? Right, because then you're a bitch and you don't respond and, oh, yo, fuck her, yo. I can't believe she didn't even say thanks. Like, I just gave her a great compliment. Like, okay, dude, well, listen, first of all, you're an asshole because maybe she's having a really bad day. Maybe something horrible just happened yeah. and you just assumed... She needs a compliment. I see her. She's looking good. Like, it's not. What do we praise? What do we value? Like, men's, like, I keep saying it, male affirmation. Like, what makes a woman feel beautiful? A guy telling her she looks good. And if a guy doesn't tell her she looks good, does she look good? And I keep saying that, but I really mean it because I think that in most of women's lives, I said in the beginning, but it's like, if a male, if a guy never told you you're pretty, what, are you pretty? What, what Disney uh, princess was it? I, I can't believe I'm going to Disney, these motherfuckers. No, um, absolutely. I yeah. mean, they completely construct our ability to understand like what women are supposed to look like and what men are supposed to do. Absolutely. I don't remember. Save which, me. Yeah. <laughs> right? The damsel in distress. Yeah. And the Prince Charming is coming to save the day. You kind of look like a prince. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Thank you. But also like, don't assume. Hold on. I'll take it back. <laughs> I forget which Disney princess it was that she wasn't allowed to look in a mirror. Uh, and she wasn't able to recognize that she was beautiful. And only by looking in a mirror could she recognize, like, in herself, because her evil stepmother, like, I should just fucking look this up. Good thing well, I was have it a, Snow White? It may have been. No, no, Snow White was asleep, right? The Seven Dwarves. Yeah, no. <laughs> we know our Disney princesses. What's up, Pocahontas? You're my yeah, girl. I Exploration. love Pocahontas. Little oh, Mermaid was mine. But like Little Mermaid, Ariel was actually really interesting because she had this very like dominating father who was very like, you know, you will behave and you will do what I say. And it was like... Stay in the seat. Yeah. but Motherfucker, like, no. Let's yeah. Explore land. And at the end, he like lets her free. And it's like this beautiful thing. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> you should have set that up. That's all right. But okay. it, yes, so we can't, or it's difficult at times to... <laughs> realize the inner worth right because that's what beauty is it's worth when you say someone's beautiful oh they're worth something oh they have something to give yeah. that inner worth that inner fulfillment of i have something that i can provide that i can give to others and that they will feel uh gracious for it whatever it might be it's missed when we're when the idea of the material thing is shoved down our throats by culture by society that you have to purchase this because it will make you more beautiful. Yeah. It will make you better. You'll be able to get more girls, more guys, whatever it might be. I think, you know, it's really important to take note of how all of these kind of larger structures of oppression do affect men. Like, I mean, you know, feminism in itself is the yearning and demand for the equality of the sexes. That's inherently what it is. There's no bullshit about it. Remember a friend in college who said, well, why can't you just say that you're a humanist? Well, fuck you. If I wanted to say that, I would say it. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that women experience oppression on a greater level than men do because they inherently benefit from a system that was designed for them, a system that was designed for white men 
and working within that and where do you fit in that. So if you are biracial, if you are a person of color, if you are a woman of color who is queer, if you're a woman of color who's transgender, not a woman, you're a transgender person, how do you experience your life? And I'm not talking, it's like kind of like all lives matter. Well, obviously all lives matter. Yeah, but if men, caring, are, yeah. but, if, but if black bodies aren't being killed at the rate that white bodies are, that's a whole different discussion. So the question is like, who's being harmed? And it's, I mean, yes, of course it's everyone, but who's being more harmed at a more extramental rate? And it's people of color, it's women, but at the same time, men are constantly and inherently at a disadvantage because of these artists in that play. If men aren't handsome, if they're not tall, if they don't feel good about themselves because they don't fit a certain expectation of what it means to be good looking, how does that affect your life? You feel like shit. You feel like you're not worthy. So it's not just a system that's like, and don't get me wrong, I mean, I am full of, you know, all the jokes that come with my own feminism is that I've always known that's what I mean. And what I was, you know, saying to you earlier was that the personal is political and your experiences are inherently political. So as a white man, as a biracial woman who doesn't identify as straight, who is very sexual, what are my experiences and what choices do I make and what does that relate to the socio-political climate in which I live? There's no there's no debate. I mean, every single choice that you make is inherently political. So Simon de, uh, Simone de Beauvoir said that, you know, the, the person is political. Everything you do is inherently telling of the socio-political climate that you live. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast and let me talk to you and uh, share part of me with you. And thank you thank for sharing you. part of you with me. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing your story. I'm uh, sure many men will be able to connect with that. I hope. I hope at the very least. Uh, so is there a plug that you would like to, in case anybody wants to reach out to you, also talk to you, some way yeah. for them to reach you? Sure. Um, I actually have been writing some poetry. It's quite beautiful, <laughs> if I do say so myself. It's called Monarch Moments. It's kind of a manifesto of my own experiences with sex and feminism. And um, you can contact me through monarchmoments at gmail.com or... I'm just going to leave it at that. Just Cool. <laughs> well, guys, thank you for joining us for another episode on the Disconnection Podcast, where we aim to inform, inspire, and close the disconnections in your life. We'd like to thank our guests for joining us today and delivering a unique perspective on a range of topics. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on iTunes and YouTube. My name is Kyle, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Disconnection.